group of young Hasidic Jewish teenagers, carefree and at ease, sing around an open-air piano in a small square in West Jerusalem, just a stone's throw from the Allenby Gate of the majestic Old City. It's a balmy December evening and the song echoes out across the city. It's a hauntingly beautiful but melancholic refrain. This is one of our first evenings in Israel and the tune's sad forlorn melody stays buried in my mind days later as we cross the wall into the West Bank. It gets me thinking about the two sides of that wall, a wall that separates not just places but people. How different your life becomes depending on which side of the wall you're born on. Even just a few meters can be hugely fateful for your future, your dreams and aspirations hope. Soon after arriving in Bethlehem, I realized I wanted to focus on the human side of living in present-day occupied Palestine. To describe how normal people's lives play out there on that side of the wall. I soon realized that Trump's decision to move the US Embassy to Jerusalem had rightly angered many people in East Jerusalem, Gaza and the West Bank. Shopkeepers saw a sharp downturn in visitors before the busy Christmas period and were being squeezed economically, as were many locals who depended on tourism. But others stressed that people's lives hadn't deteriorated that much. This was the norm. There were, of course, more protests, but life for many remained the same. Most of the people who were willing to talk to me were Palestinian, so I am aware that the report may come across as a little one-sided. But I tried to leave politics at the door on this and just describe what I saw and how I felt. You can make up your own mind, if you will. I, of course, also talked to Israelis, but their lives in West Jerusalem and in the settler colonies of the West Bank and around the rest of Israel are very much like ours in the West. They have cars, jobs, food on the table, modern transportation, a good health system, playgrounds and creches for their children, money in their bank accounts, an army to defend them, enough water and electricity to live comfortably through the chill of winter as well as the blazing heat of summer, a foreign holiday a few times a year, a night at the theatre, at the movies, a stand-up show, maybe a concert, some wine. On the other side of the wall, just miles from West Jerusalem, it was a very different story. In a bar in Bethlehem's old town, I luckily bumped into the charismatic figure of Zugbi al-Zugbi, the founder of the Palestinian NGO WIM, 
the Palestinian Conflict Transformation Centre, who kindly invited me to visit his organisation near Rachel's tomb the following morning. Come early, he said. There will be protests after prayer and you don't want to get caught up in them. The next day I was immediately welcomed as a friend into the centre and we ate fresh Jerusalem bread with sesame seeds and delicious mezza. And I got talking to Usama Nicola about the organisation's activist, non-violent resistance efforts across the West Bank. I'm here with uh, Osama from Wiam in Bethlehem, just outside the border wall, um, and we're expecting some protests right after uh, prayers uh, this afternoon. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his organization and what they're uh, doing here in Bethlehem. Uh, Wiam is a grassroots organization that was established in 1994 to respond to the needs of the local community. The main aim uh, of our uh, organization and our activities is to keep hope for peace alive and to keep hope alive in general. So, and we, through different activities, we try to keep hope alive and create a safe environment for children, for women, <coughs> and uh, for young people. Mm -hmm. um, how effective is nonviolent resistance in a Palestinian context? I believe uh, since uh, we have a justice case as Palestinian, uh, we need to use the nonviolent in our st struggle, in our resistance. Uh, we have a justice case, we want more people to be aware of our uh, case, and we want more people to be in solidarity with us. And in the end, we don't want to use our humanity uh, when we use violence. And uh, I, I believe the Palestinian struggle has been mainly nonviolent because less than 1% of the Palestinian has been engaged in armed struggle. Uh, so uh, uh, even according to Geneva Convention, we have the right to use any kind of uh, resistance. But we prefer the nonviolent because we want uh, to, to protect our humanity and we don't want to give any opportunity for the Israelis uh, to to use uh, more violence against us and more collective punishment uh, because they take the excuse of the the uh, the armed struggle or another kind of struggle. Mm -hmm. So we have the right to resist the occupation. Uh, we want to end the occupation, and um, I believe uh, nonviolent is one of the the best way to continue the struggle where more people can participate and everyone can participate children women elderly uh, and in uh, in most of the times you know like during uh, our protest in different uh, nonviolent pockets the, the israelis has been using the violence against mm -hmm. the protest um, and they have shoot at us. I was injured in one of the, the non-violent demonstrations. Uh, others were arrested. Uh, and uh, so they have been always uh, using uh, violence against us in all the non-violent protests. Uh, how constructive is it for those Palestinian kids to throw stones and everything? Is there any uh, objective there or um, how can you convince them not to you know, do it? Not or? everyone can transform the yeah. anger in sure. the same way. We are all angry. We are all angry against the occupation. We are all angry against uh, other regimes who don't see uh, uh, our rights uh, and, uh, and 
don't understand it. I, 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 I believe, uh, I believe uh, many Palestinians don't look to the throwing stones protest as, an, as a violent uh, protest. Mm -hmm. And this is another, uh, another uh, subject that, you know, like they believe it's just uh, throwing stones against the concrete uh, world. It, it's not gonna damage anyone or harm anyone. It's more to show the anger and uh, tell that we are not happy with the situation and we need a, a solution. Uh, in general, I don't encourage any child to take uh, to take uh, part in any protest that has throwing stones. Children need to study and uh, mm -hmm. to be uh, protected and be safe. Uh, and um, so, uh, even I will not encourage anyone to throw stones because he will put himself in a danger. The Israelis want to kill or harm or arrested people. So I'm not encouraging throwing stones. I'm for protesting. Uh, uh, um, for a mass non-violent movement mm -hmm. to protest and uh, have uh, slogans and a loud voice against the occupation. Okay, and just a final question. Um, I think one of the biggest obstacles to peace in the Middle East is the continued expansion of settlements in the West Bank, uh, Israeli settlements in the West Bank, where they get uh, you know tax-free loans, they get tax breaks, they get everything else to come and uh, encourage to live here. What can Palestinian people at a grassroots level and organizations, organizations like yours do to stop that sort of expansionist activity because obviously under international law it's illegal but it's illegal. as long as America keeps vetoing UN resolutions then it continues to happen and at the moment there's something like 800,000 Jewish settlers in the West Bank. What, what can organizations like yours do to stop this? Raising awareness for mm -hmm. locals and internationals that this is illegal and um, uh, if the international community is more aware, they make more pressure on their uh, on their politicians, and uh, because it's against uh, the international law, it's against the United Nations Resolution 242 mm -hmm. and 338, mm -hmm. and the recent uh, resolution from last year, uh, 22334, the last resolution, which is illegal, and according to Geneva Convention 4, it's illegal to move uh, the. Uh, uh, the citizens of the occupiers to the occupied area and uh, there is many nonviolent tools that can be used uh, to boycott the products from the settlements and not to deal with the settlers and not to encourage uh, you, you think BDS is effective? It's, I can see that it's the largest international uh, movement today and yes it's a, it's a nonviolent tool that can be effective and then our interview was suddenly cut short prematurely as it seemed the demonstration had already begun. He quickly showed me a little display of recently retrieved IDF memorabilia from the street outside, including rubber bullets, sonic bombs and actual live shells. All of the tear gas canisters were five years or more past their expiry date, something which volunteers say increases the toxicity of the contents. A mistake made by young and experienced Israeli recruits or a calculated and cynical decision from someone higher up the chain of command. As we hurriedly left, a group of journalists had gathered at the foot of the Israeli army watchtower near us, and at the opposite end of the street about 150 Palestinians with flags and tires were starting to slowly approach, chanting as they neared. An Israeli military drone flew slowly overhead and I could see the flicker of a camera in the watchtower taking footage of everyone on the street below, including me. 
All the reporters I saw wore hard hats and flak jackets with the word press emblazoned across them. It was time to get out of there. One of them shouted at me. You have about 30 seconds until they start firing tear gas. And then I just started to run. Later that same day, near the Milk Grotto in Bethlehem, we would meet Khalid, selling religious fridge magnets and trinkets. He was charming, well-educated and spoke excellent English. Khalid had got cerebral palsy when he was a baby. The incubator he was placed in had ran out of oxygen. A totally preventable and tragic event, the ramifications of which he was still dealing with today. He used a mobile buggy to get around that was donated to him by an Italian friend's crowdfunding appeal, all 6,000 euros of it. He invited us on a tour of the two refugee camps in the city. One of them, Ida, he and his family still lived in. He had just had a young baby boy with his wife. Life was far from easy in Palestine as an able-bodied person, but living with a severe physical handicap presented its own unique challenges. Disabled access to most places was unheard of, and even footpaths were scarce. Everyday activities were a struggle, and he now had two more people who depended on him as the breadwinner. But rising food costs and a shortage of work meant that he lived hand-to-mouth most of the time. But that said, he was an upbeat, positive guy. He had to be. Kali preferred not to be recorded for this report, but... Instead, he recalled, in vivid detail, the brutal reality of living day in, day out in Ida refugee camp, just metres from the separation wall that divided everything in its path. gas could come at any time of the day or night. Its thick, acrid plume would, depending on the wind, wind its way slowly down the narrow alleyways of Ida Camp in Bethlehem, where 6,000 people live crammed into a little less than a fifth of a square kilometre. The density of the population means that the gas has a maximum impact as it creeps menacingly towards people's homes, enveloping all in its smoky path like a demented magic trick gone wrong. The ghostly cloud appears without notice in front of you. But the joke was on the residents, every single one of them who were unlucky enough to be living in this place. No one escapes its clutches. If you're caught unawares on the street when the first canisters land, you need to head for the nearest shop or neighbor's house. And its effects are almost immediate. It even happened to myself and my father that same day we went on the tour with Khalid. 
Suddenly, from it being a bright, sunny winter's day, a hazy fog shrouded the narrow alleyway we walked down. Khalid ushered us into a little shop on a side street. The residents behaved in the casual way that only those who are subjected to something on a regular basis can. They moved to avoid the cloud of poison like an Irish person ducks into a bus shelter to avoid a short rain shower. There was something hugely unsettling about the casual and everyday manner that they dealt with the sickening abnormality of this act. A foreign army firing chemical gas into a residential neighbourhood. Their neighbourhood. Just another day in Ida camp. A closed door would stop some, but not all of the poison from entering your lungs. Natural openings and cracks mean that residential homes and schools are simply not designed to shield from the effects of a poison gas. It's chemical warfare. You could taste its acid on the back of your throat, feel the burn of it in your nostrils and on your exposed skin. Khalid's young boy would scream in pain after the malign miasma entered their living room through the natural vents in the windows and doors. Infants, small children, pregnant women and the sick and elderly were almost always the most vulnerable. They say that where Khalid lives is the most exposed residential place to tear gas in the world. Sometimes they throw it in response to a protest against the occupation. Kids flinging stones. Other times it's totally indiscriminate and unpredictable. But one thing is constant. The frequency. The long-term physical consequences of this almost daily deluge is impossible to, ter to determine. Short-term it involves everything from vomiting, asthma, headaches, even miscarriages. Who knows the true impact of long-term exposure over a period of years? Many residents agree that recently the gas is stronger, more toxic, and its effects on the population more debilitating. Many of the refugee camps in the West Bank are a kind of giant open-air chemical weapons testing lab for the IDF. For several years, the military have changed the composition of the gas they use, and as of now, no one knows what is actually in it except the military. This makes treating the symptoms harder for Palestinian doctors. That and the fact that medical records are rarely kept for such cases. Doing so could put the victim on the IDF's radar if the hospital was ever raided. But put yourself in the place of a resident of Ida camp for just one moment. Close your eyes and imagine what I have just described happening to you and to your family on a regular basis. The physical consequences of continuous tear gassing is one thing, but what about the mental scars, the psychological trauma of it all, of being constantly on edge, watchful, and wondering when the next gas canister will be hurled at your home? Tell me, how would you cope? What would you do 